Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there, space monkeys. Welcome to another episode of Cycling in Alignment. We are approaching 100, but we're not quite there yet. I was in Girona at the end of 2022 and had the opportunity to sit down with my good friend, Nathan Haas. I'm so honored to call that guy my friend. He was an athlete that I coached for many years, but now we get to hang out and be friends, which in some ways is even cooler. Although coaching him was a great joy. He taught me a lot. So, today we're talking about the primal fear. This episode was published on Nathan's podcast, The Gravelog. If you haven't checked it out, please give it a spin. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Nathan is a smart, philosophical, and introspective guy, so he's always got cool stuff to talk about with his guests. And we get a bit into the primal fear today. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm not going to preamble about it anymore. You'll just have to push the play button, go forth and enjoy. Thanks for listening. As always, if you have questions or comments on this pod, you can hit me on Instagram or email. If you have great questions you want me to answer in the podcast, email me and we'll see what happens. As always, pedal fast and pedal with consciousness. Be well. So I am this afternoon sitting on a rooftop terrace in the old town of Girona. Um, it's December and I actually have my shirt off because I'm soaking in some sun, getting that vitamin D. Remember, vitamin D supplements aren't the same as the sun. The sun is the ultimate. Uh, it's really strange because it's actually winter right now and I rode in shorts in a jersey today. That's why this part of the world is amazing. But I'm sitting here with one of my best friends and ex-coach Colby Pierce. Hey, man. Uh, we've done a few podcasts together, actually, on this channel and also on Colby's own podcast called Cycling in Alignment. If you haven't checked it out, I'd highly recommend it. It goes into all the nitty-gritty 
bits and bobs that I wish I could uh, verbalize myself, but I don't think I'm there yet in terms of vocabulary, language, understanding, and I've not spent 35 years working and writing in cycling like Colby has. So I'm always uh, very excited to be on Colby's podcast. Sometimes I feel like I'm the imposter, but we always seem to bring it around where I feel like we do something fantastic together. Um, today I'm recording for the Gravelog. Um, it's also going to be up on Colby's podcast as well. So this is a bit of a cross pod. But the format, instead of being a cycling and alignment podcast, it's about gravel, um, a bit more than gravel. We always sort of talk in global concepts, but we're all going to try to bring it back to um, the concept of coaching and training and thinking about how that all relates back to your goals, aspirations in gravel. So Colby was my coach for over six years uh, in my professional world tour career. And then last year, I actually decided to be self-coached um, going into gravel uh, because I kind of wanted a bit of a change of mindset myself. I didn't want to be part of this structured thing that I'd been part of for so many years. But it also definitely put me into, at times, um, probably a little bit of a, a shit pile when it came to actually planning things out. It's really nice to have somebody that's looking at things globally and zooming out and also seeing things from... Um, an external perspective as opposed to an internal one because sometimes your instincts um, actually weren't your correct instinct because uh, sometimes you could say in a way that your own ego or your own motivation gets in the way and that's where having a coach is um, such a fantastic thing. doesn't mean that self-coaching is bad uh, but there is definitely a challenge to that. So I sit now, I'm in December, I've just finished my first gravel season and to put it into context, when I was in the World Tour, I would normally finish racing at the start of... Oh, there's some bells in the background. I hope that's nice ambient noise. Authentic. Girona experience. We're setting the scene. Um, but I used to finish my season somewhere in October, and I'd normally have three to four weeks off the bike, um, and that nervous part of you is sort of already thinking about, ah, I hope I haven't lost too much form, etc. because there's so many important races around the corner. And in road especially modern road racing now, every race is important. You don't necessarily have this feeling like the first race is a year of preparation races because every team is already trying to get a win on the board literally the first day. And you have to think there's, there's a lot of teams, so that's not always possible. So there's a sort of inherent nervousness to being in the world tour when it comes to fitness and training. But then you also have other things like your team training camps in December, which also help whip you into shape. And the fact that you have racing in January and February for everyone in the world tour now, no one waits. Um, so there's also a big reason to get fit. But I'm in an interesting situation coming to the end of this season is that my last race was in October at the World Championships um, of gravel, which was I've spoken about already at length. It was a pretty cool experience. It wasn't very much a gravel race. It was something in between road gravel and craziness. Um, but I don't race again really in earnest, in full gas um, effect until April, which when you think about it in terms of months, it's like almost six months between serious races. I'm stuck at the moment in what I would call a comparative mindset, um, which is kind of a dangerous place to be if you don't have the ability to zoom out and find perspective about it. And what I mean by comparative mindset is at the moment, I'm comparing myself to a lot of my gravel contemporaries who are at the moment training 
their asses off already, doing lots of base miles, doing heaps of heaps of heaps of work. Um, some more than others, some less. But I would say that I'm doing inarguably less than everyone at the moment. My instinct is telling me that I don't need to be fit for a long time. But there's a trap. And sometimes that trap is that you actually don't end up doing enough to be ready for your goals um, when they do come. Giving yourself sometimes too much rest, especially as you get older and fitness is, it takes a little bit longer to get, arguably. Maybe you could also argue against that. Um, that you could find yourself coming into your first race is not fit enough and being behind the eight ball. And sometimes it is hard to catch up once you're racing because racing is weekends away, lots of travel to the next race and not much time to actually train in between it. So you can come up really short before your big goals or race blocks. But inversely, uh, we see, and traditionally we've always seen so many riders actually hit their best numbers. Um, you know, if we want to talk about numbers as the, you know, uh, key performance indicator, uh, they often hit them in sort of February and then they're looking throughout their next classics block and into the Grand Tour block, trying to chase those numbers and sensations again. And a lot of riders, I, I would argue, are actually kind of overtrained by the time they get to April, May. And that's when riders throughout the winter start to get sick, they start to get injured and they don't hit the goals that they've been thinking about through their whole off season. Um, so today, Colby and I are going to talk about a concept known as the primal fear it's a concept not uh, defined by us. I'm going to let Colby break into that in a second. Um, but it's something that Colby and I have <coughs> thought on and spoken on many times over. And we're going to use my uh, situation as um, a good example that hopefully everyone can actually put themselves into the same uh, narrative and storyline based on their goals and story and where they are in fitness and timing at the moment. So, Colby, mm. firstly, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks slash, for having me on the show. Slash sharing podcasts. You bet. Um, I'm going to let you jump into, hopefully, a long monologue about what the primal fear is. You sly dog, you got me monologuing again. So, the primal fear is, the reason it's called the primal fear is because it hits everybody in one form or another, right? And ultimately, it's about being enough. It's simply about being enough. And it's it's the root of the comparative mindset. And it's probably, I would say its origins are probably in tribal society or tribal culture. In a, a tribal perspective, you're thinking about being part of the collective. If you're part of a 50 or 80 person tribe and the survival of that tribe depends upon everyone having proper relationship within that community, and contributing to that community and also not being a burden on that community, then you have this awareness, this cultural awareness, this awareness within the community of your place. And so if you're part of the hunting party, you're on time when the hunt leaves and you're bringing your spear, right? To make simple examples of it. You're, you're contributing in the right way. So the primal fear is about you not being enough and in that tribal example, it'd be not being good enough at doing whatever your role is. If you're part of the hunting party, you're not a good enough hunter to be on that party. You're not good. If you're a weapons maker, you're not good enough at making weapons. Uh, if you're in a bike race, the primal fear can come up in lots of ways uh, as a competitive athlete. It can be that you're not fit enough to do well in this race. You're not rested enough to do well in this race. You haven't eaten enough breakfast. So it's always about being enough. 
if we generalize it to society, it can take the form of I'm not good looking enough, I'm not rich enough, I don't have a good enough car to impress that girl, or I don't have uh, big enough boobs to get that guy's attention, whatever, you know, we all have this, um, this voice that comes up in our head from time to time. And it's sort of the worst case scenario perspective. Another way to think about it is imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is another form of the primal fear. And to my knowledge, no one's really above it. Um, I mean, we hear stories about even world level athletes who have experienced this same, the same perspective. Of course, not everyone does. Uh, some people bury their primal fear or their imposter syndrome by being overconfident. And if you don't look below the level of that veneer, you see their confidence, their overconfidence, their, their boasting, their feather fluffing, their peacocking, whatever they're doing at the highest level of the sport, for example, or in, or in business or anywhere else. And it comes across as confidence superficially. In most cases, that overconfidence is actually a big indicator that the primal fear is quite alive in them. And they're trying to they're trying to polish it. They're trying to cover it up. They're trying to mask it with these behaviors that show how smart they are, how cool they are, how much money they have, or how fast they are on the bike, right? And there's a an old saying, which probably came from the Tao Te Ching, which is, I'll, I'll butcher it or paraphrase it a bit, but it's something like, someone who knows doesn't speak. So when we witness someone over posturing or fluffing the chest to try to tell us, convince the world how good they are at something or how important they are, how much they know. Often I simply observe, and it's not that I know more than they do. That's not my point at all. It's that I see their behavior. And the reason I can witness that behavior is of course, because I've engaged in that behavior in my life and I probably will in the future. Uh, but the objective for me as a human, or one of my objectives, we'll say, is to witness that behavior in other people and use it as a mirror, a reflector in myself to remember that when I feel that same fear welling up in me, how do I respond to it? It's really not about elimination of these types of experiences to be a human. You're not going to, I don't think the end result of enlightenment or um, maybe it's just the crescendo of your athletic experience or your athletic um, journey isn't to not have the primal fear. It's not to expunge it or eliminate it or burn it to the ground or, or never, ex never, never have it happen in your life. It's more about, okay, I'm having this experience again, because I'm a person and this is how people live in life. It's about your response. It's about witnessing it, recognizing it earlier before you have an automatic response. Um, and another way to think about that is walking through life with consciousness and intention rather than being steered or driven with autonomic responses to these internal sensations we have. Because pretty much every day we have the opportunity to see someone who's, especially in cycling, right? I mean, how many times do you go on the bike and you're like blown away by how good someone else is? Like, holy shit, she's fast. Or holy, I can't believe how fast that guy is. Or I was trying so hard and they just dropped me. I mean, I've had this experience millions of times in my cycling career, seemingly. And I've been racing a long time. And I mean, on the one hand, I've won a lot of bike races and I've had really good success in the sport. But on the other hand, at the same time, I've been so shelled 
like not even part of a Peloton so many times where I've just gotten totally smashed and had my teeth kicked in. So I've seen both sides of the sport and that to me is part of the beauty of it. So when we have that humbling experience and that fear wells up because that comparative mindset immediately sees what's happening. Like I've trained this much and I've made this preparation and I'm this strong and I've had these calculations in my head about my season, my gravel season. And I've, I forecasted into the future and looked at my goals and said, ah, I'm going to prepare for this. And then a month later, I've done this amount of training and I think I'm on target. And here's someone who, from my view, has more or less the same goals that I do. And they're training so much faster than me or they're doing more miles than me or whatever. And you go, ooh, wait a minute. That's the moment when the fear wells up. It arises within you. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I good enough? You know, what have I done wrong here? Yeah. So I, that's a great explanation of the final fear. And you know, where I see that relating to my current experience is that, you know, I'm training. I've been back on the bike now for quite a few weeks and I think I'm riding enough for what I think is you know, my own needs physically and also mentally because we have to remember that the, the biggest rate limiting factor throughout a season is actually motivation, is to stay on the bike and doing that hard work um, and I, I truly believe that we only have a limited amount of suffering that we can do every season. Um, it's like a water cup. Um, you know, every time you squeeze out a super hard day, it's like tipping out a bit of water. And then some days in training, if you, if you say, oh, I'm going to be that hard bastard and go out in that six hours in the rain, even though it's cold and shit, you know, this is on my program or I see other guys doing it, I have to do it. It's, that's pouring out a lot of that motivation and suffering juice in that mm. cup. Um, and at a certain point in the season, you also get pretty low on that and then you start to really conserve and, and maybe you're actually not getting enough in the races anymore because mm. training is such an effort that you're almost fatigued from trying and mm. that's something that I think is um, something that everyone can probably relate to um, you know anyone that's tried to do a full year of cycling will realize that you can't actually do a full year of cycling so here I am in December um, training to what I think enough is enough but then I look on Instagram right you know social media it's it's a really fun thing. It's a really cool thing. But it's also got a really dangerous side to it, which is it can delve you into this comparative mindset. You know, whether that be, you know, oh, how do my friends have enough money to go traveling to all these countries all the time? You know, it feels like these people don't do any work. You know, they're just enjoying life. You know, why isn't my life like this? Or they've got a car and you don't realize that either mum or dad bought it or it's on loan. Um, mm. You know, they're paying, <laughs> they're paying a lot of money month by month but they didn't actually have enough money to buy that car because, you know, they're a normal person. And, and you think, gosh, why don't I have that kind of car? And um, it's, it's a dangerous place to be. But when you see how much riding people are doing as an athlete online or when people are starting to post or talk about their numbers, you can fall into this stress response. And this is what you're talking about is, is a response. And where that matters is not only psychologically, but also uh, chemically, this matters when you have a stress response, you have an enormous amount of cortisol flow through your body. Mm. And uh, to delve into things actually on a cellular level, to break it down, um, you know, our cells have an ability to replicate and to produce things like hormones, like testosterone, which is a very important hormone, um, just to isolate one, for example. But when a cell is actually translating its DNA into RNA to actually create a particular molecule, and in this circumstance, that target molecule is testosterone, 
If you have too much cortisol, it can actually change the expression of that testosterone to be estrogen. And estrogen for men in large quantities is like the brake on all systems. Mm -hmm. Whereas testosterone is like the accelerator on all systems. You sleep better, you train better, you recover better, you sleep better. And it's all of a sudden you're on this massive growth cycle. But if you have stress, all of a sudden you're actually not getting some of these key components to actually what Mm. underpins growth. Mm. Um, So that's just isolating one hormone. Um, But it's a good example of what cortisol cortisol can actually do to your body. Yeah. Um, And these stress responses are real and they're really profound. And even though they're only happening on a really small level, at a cellular level, these things build up over time. Mm. Um, But again, it's it's really hard to control that response, right? And it takes what I think is a deeper understanding of um, how things work. And this is where a lot of the time having a coach can be good, but also can be really dangerous because Mm. I know a lot of coaches right now that are putting a lot of riders through a lot of stress. Mm. And we have to see that everything that we do to our body is stress. Going to the sauna is a stress. Doing an ice bath is a stress. Even though we can see these as recovery modalities, yes, Mm -hmm. they stimulate a particular outcome, but don't confuse them for not being stresses. And stress in the body, you can look at it actually as a global value. We can call it global stress. Each stress compiles onto one another, and we need just the right amount of stress, or what we could call the minimum effective dose of stress, to actually be able to then recover from. Mm. Uh, So if we look at some of the training people are doing in December, maybe that is right for them, but also maybe their coach is also overreaching because they're not looking at things at a deeper level. They're just always looking for a higher FTP or a higher functional number or a higher max sprint or a higher one minute value. But this might not necessarily have any uh, outcome, a positive outcome come April or the fact that my Mm. season starts in April and ends in October, which is actually quite a long time to be performing at a high level. When you've got several months until your season even begins. So there's that to consider as well. I mean, this is like... When I worked with the team in 2014, when you and I met, Robbie Ketchell, we had a conversation about the early season of the team. And I said, oh, is there going to be a January camp? Which is, at that point, was relatively traditional for the World Tour teams to have a January camp. And he said, well, no, the problem with January camp is the last three years, what I've seen is most of the riders on the team, especially the new riders, they produce their best power values of the entire year, inevitably, at January camp. Because... As soon as they sign a contract, whenever that is, in August or whatever, right? Maybe they do a few rides as a stash year and they get their contract finalized in the early fall or something. Then all fall, they've just made the jump to World Tour, right? So they have this new opportunity. So what do they do? Naturally, they're just lifted by this motivation. I mean, this is probably at least five years, oftentimes 10 years of a dream manifesting because you're on a World Tour team for the first time ever. So you can't help be drawn into this goal and think about, riding with this new team and the new kit and the new bike and all the mechanics and the chances you're going to have every ride all fall. So of course, what happens? You get to January camp and boom, you do your best 20 minute of the year, best five minute of the year, your best one hour of the year. And then after that, the performance just gets slightly less stupendous (laughs) throughout the season. And less consistent. And, And less consistent. And of course, that's not what we want as coaches and trainers. We don't want our riders to do their best five minute or 20 minute effort or 60 minute effort ever in training ever. We want that on race day because how many PRs can you actually do that are true PRs? So if we only have maybe a handful of those in a season, we want those to be on a race day, 
right? Not in training, but also we don't want the new rider to do that at January camp when the, when there's not even a race for six weeks in most cases, or maybe longer. So they eliminated that part of the equation. They said, we don't, it doesn't make sense to have this January camp because we know riders inevitably, no matter what we tell them, they're still going to have this experience where they just, it just manifests. So we're going to try to pause that. And so it's like that old saying, timing is everything, right? You are, you're evaluating the context of Nathan's life right now. How many years of competition do you have? Uh, what's your current life circumstance? You recently became a father, right? So we have to, re- we have to weigh reality into the situation. Like how much time can you afford to train right now? And would it be a good investment on the return? If you said, I need a couple 25 hour weeks at the moment, when we know that your sleep really isn't super consistent, like if you're getting some sleep on most nights, but we can't guarantee that on any given night, you're going to have a solid night's rest because you've got a young kid. So does it, Makes sense to have you schedule four and five hour rides in December. I would argue that that's a pretty risky proposition for you right now. Right. So then, um, to Sorry relate, I got you off, to, off track to, there. No, 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 hundred percent. So to relate this back to what people can actually learn from what we're trying to say, hmm. um, if we haven't already lost everybody, <laughs> thank you for sticking with us. If you have, if you've been lost, then well, welcome back, welcome back, or <laughs> thanks for listening before. <laughs> You won't hear this, but thank you anyway. How do we relate this back to um, people um, Mm. in terms of self-regulating when they see people doing more than them? Right. Um, And break that down into two characteristics. How do you self... Well, how do you regulate somebody or encourage self-regulation as a coach? Mm. And then how would you recommend that also if somebody is self-coached? Right. So... Um, here's what I would offer is what are we trying to do when we reduce and distill down to the core action? What's happening is we have a human experience. That human experience is comparative, right? That experience is I saw someone else's Strava file and I realized they're training six hours a week more than I am right now average. Or I saw someone else's Strava file and I'll say there's got to be a bit of nuance here because if you see one big ride from one of your, let's say it's your nemeses of racing you know, or your colleagues, whatever, however you want to phrase it, and you see one huge ride on a day where you didn't ride, okay, let's take a moment and step back. That's one day. That's not really an appropriate comparison. So if you're reacting to that, the best way might be to zoom out and look at their overall training load if you're going to go on this quest to quantify someone else's load. I'm not saying that's necessarily advisable, because you need to stay on your path. However, you and I had a part about this discussion the other day. Part of cleaving or distilling the competitive mindset is we acknowledge that we do have to witness our competitors on the bike in training and in racing. Why? Because you're trying to beat them. So you have to keep one eye on what they're doing. If there was some new amazing tire technology that all the gravel racers used and showed up to the first race to, but you buried your head in the sand for three months before the season had no idea, right? I mean, well, let's use inserts as an example, right? It's like you're the only person who didn't know about inserts and you show up to a really technical rocky course and everyone else has inserts and you've got six PSI we're, more in your tires. We're talking about tire inserts, inserts. rim liners, different yeah, name for it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Like, just use that as a hypothetical thought experiment. If, if you were in a situation where you were the only guy at the world level who showed up and didn't have that because you had no idea because you weren't reading any magazines and you weren't looking at social media and didn't pay attention to any tire technology advancements 
and you show up to the race, you'd be way out the back. So, so we can see quickly that we have to keep one eye on the competition, but we also have to do it with the grounded understanding that we are on track for our own path. And if you are self-coached and you are confident in your abilities to be realistic and understanding of the limitations of self-coaching, which I can break down if we want, then you're staying on that path. And that requires a bit of commitment. It requires almost, I would argue, a meditative mindset. I'm not saying you specifically have to meditate on it, but you need to have quiet moments where you're reflective about your training. You're looking at your diary. You're looking at your own load and you're thinking, okay, these are the goals that I set out for myself next year. Here's why I am on that path. Am I on target? Am I making progress towards those goals? And you have to use both qualitative and quantitative data to, to ensure that you are on that goal. You break, can tell some of those it. two concepts quickly. Yeah. So qualitative being numbers, right? So you're look, maybe your goal you written out this week, I'm going to shoot for 18 hours of training. I'm going to do that for three weeks in a row. And I'm going to take an easy week over Christmas holiday week or whatever. Um, but Oh, I look at my training and qualitatively, I've only done 12 and eight hours. I'm way off the mark of what I thought I needed to do to build up. This was going to be a higher volume focus. So we're looking at qualitative data like are your are your power numbers improving in the in the types of work and energy systems you're trying to train. Quantitative is it's one thing to adhere to the numbers and be qualitatively on target, but if you feel like you're dragging a tree stump around on every ride, then you might be accumulating more mass and your instinct on where you ought to be versus where you should might be becoming too disparate, right? Too too far away from each other. Those two lines. We want them to be parallel if not convergent meaning the when you when you lay out a plan for a season and you have an idea of number of hours you want to train and the types of work you want to work on during different parts of the season that's effectively a model right and then you're comparing that model to your current reality and there should those two should be relatively parallel and if they're really wildly off course because you got covid for 3 weeks or because the weather's been absolute crap wherever you live for 3 weeks and you haven't been able to execute then you got to maybe readjust the plan a bit to account for that so that's part of where the quantitative aspect of training comes in and you say okay maybe i am on talk on track in terms of the numbers but quantitatively i feel terrible or it could be the opposite and that, if you're feeling amazing on every single ride, it's like, hmm, am I undershooting what I'm capable of? And that would be the less likely scenario, but it's possible, right? So we're always adjusting those two, the, the hypothetical plan versus reality, what's actually happening. Right. That which is measured improves. And I don't necessarily, I mean measured both quantitatively and qualitatively, right? Yeah. Makes sense? 100%. Yeah. Cool. Um, so this year for me, I actually got rid of training peaks. Yeah. I haven't uploaded a single file, but I'm still making files and I'm still looking at those numbers on my Garmin after each ride. And I kind of can do the math. You know, my, my Garmin also has you know, Garmin Connect, which does yep. a lot of the same weekly features. analysis, but it doesn't, I don't look at it like I used to do. Mm. Um, you know, I've always used TSS um, as a very good measure of kind of just general load um, because I think it's a, it's not an exact way, but if you have like you know three weeks of 800 TSS and then a week at 1200 TSS, uh, you know, and then you give yourself a rest and then you can say, okay, that was one good build if we're going to look at it like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm sort of maybe aiming to build it up to 900 TSS, um, you know, for the next build as my base instead of 800. Mm -hmm. um, 
I've, I've always used TSS as a good number, but um, what's been interesting um, working with you for so many years is that you are always a coach that has a very intimate understanding of the numbers behind the training. But we always used to speak about how I felt and also how I related to the suffering. Um, and we've done a podcast before about talking about surrendering to the effort and actually letting the power come up as opposed to trying to force it into the pedals. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. But something that I learned from you was actually doing a race or a training block period and we'd talk about what I felt like I wasn't good at. And that's how we'd sort of hone in on what was next. Um, what, what was my next focus to build up? I would say, you know, my endurance actually was not a problem at all in those races, but that high intensity part was there or vice versa. Dude, I could go with every single attack, but I couldn't do it all day. Mm. Um, so I think um, as a self-coached rider, uh, having done that now this year, what I've actually felt is a really good way to kind of zoom out is to have those self-reflective moments and actually break down where your race went wrong. You know, your yep. race... If your race goes right, it's actually very hard to analyze what you did right because you were just mm -hmm. good. But it's a good thing to actually analyze internally, not just through the numbers. It was like, yeah, you know, I got those five-minute efforts done that I set myself. You know, I wanted to do five by five with five minutes rest at this power. Yep. And I got it done, but I felt like a dog. I was just killing myself to get it done. Yep. So there's a self-reflective moment that you can actually take inside an effort once you've actually gone through it and said well maybe that's a sign that i'm not fresh enough or maybe that's a sign that i need more rest between these things or maybe i am actually doing too much at the moment mm -hmm. um, or i need to back down my volume and specifically target some shorter stuff with more rest between it so or maybe you're just out of shape or i'm out of shape and I've, that's, I've had that experience i'm currently right there <laughs> <laughs> but um i guess what i'm trying to say is you know, just because other people are out there smashing themselves to bits and saying they felt great, mm. it's okay to not be um, excellent all the time. And that's one of the things that I love about cycling versus, say, an Olympic sport where your target is this one day every four years, you know, if, if you make it there, mm. uh, that it can go completely right on that day or it can go a little bit wrong or it can go completely wrong. Uh, where cycling's great is we have a whole season to get it right and you only need to win one race or a few races to actually say this was a really good season um, and it's okay for other parts of the season to just not be good enough but I would correct what I'm saying is that actually you are good enough it's just impossible to be good all the time without being a Pidcock or a Vanderpol and accepting the fact that your competitors might be out there doing more than you because they are better than you mm. at kind of a base level like their capacity is higher to be good all year but it doesn't mean mm. you can't beat them at the right time and that's where um, I call it self-love, maybe. <laughs> Actually, you mm -hmm. know, giving you, cutting yourself a break, giving yeah. yourself some, um, some self-respect to say, hey, I know I can't actually do as many hours as those guys all the time. Or like you said, this isn't the best investment in time for me right now, all December, to be killing myself. Because ultimately, I also know that it only takes me a certain amount of time to actually get to top fitness once I have a decent uh, underlying body of work behind me. Mm -hmm. So as a coach, how long do you seem to think that most riders actually take to get from that general riding around well <coughs> to hitting some of their best numbers, if we're going to use mm. numbers as the measure? That's a hard question to answer because it's so individually variable. Uh, there's so much individual variability within the rider. I mean, it depends quite a bit on 
what type of writer you're dealing with in the first place. Are you dealing with someone who's very highly glycolytic and that's their sort of default strategy for solving problems is to use that glycolytic energy store and we're training their aerobic system, right? They're more aerobic VO2 based system. Those are kind of the, the two contrasting energy systems in, aerobic, in, in endurance sports, right? Are those two and, and generally when you push hard on one to train one, the other tends to get worse. They're almost like on a teeter-totter in most instances. So if, you're, if your glycolytic or VLA max system gets stronger, then your VO2 system kind of tends to not be as good and vice versa. And this is one of the unique things about cycling is we have athletes who have both of those characteristics highly expressed in the same peloton. Most other sports are not like that. I mean, basketball, everyone's glycolytic. European football, everybody's glycolytic, right? They have aerobic base, but what makes the game is the glycolytic power, right? I mean, I'm speaking slightly out of my expertise here because I haven't studied those athletes, but... Gly- glycolytic, just in full layman's terms, is explosivity. Yeah, yeah. Repeated explosivity or even one-time explosivity. And it, you think of it like a battery, and once that battery runs low, then you're running on the aerobic system predominantly. And so you're sort of limited. You're rate limited at that point. You're speed limited. So it depends on where the athlete falls on that spectrum, either by training or by nature, their natural abilities. And then it also depends on what event they are preparing for, right? So, I mean, Nathan, your natural abilities are highly glycolytic. You're, you're very much on the glycolytic end of the spectrum. You're a very explosive athlete. You gain strength very quickly in the gym, for example. Um, and so as an athlete, that makes you a very powerful rider. And it means that as a coach, we had to train you when you were training for the classics, we had to make sure you had the endurance to make it through those things. And if we put that whole package together, if we were able to train your endurance levels to be sufficiently high, meaning your aerobic, uh, energy systems to be sufficient to meet the demands of the event, without completely cutting off all the glycolytic strength you had, then you were an extremely capable rider because you had more natural explosive strength you could tap on while matching everyone else's glycolytic engine, at least sufficiently for the day, right? Especially when you add some cleverness to use it at the right moment. Um, Whereas now in gravel, we could make the argument that actually the demands are, are somewhat similar to a classic in that respect because we've got long extended periods of high aerobic demand. Right. right, right. So, depending on the race, but generally speaking, that's safe. Yeah, that's a safe um, characteristic of the racing. So, to to try to answer your question, I don't know that I can. I mean, okay, let's say someone is in that medium fit place where they're fit enough to apply load without falling to pieces, um, but they really haven't done any intensity yet. So they've been riding maybe some steady rides. Most riders can start to see really big gains in glycolytic pathways in as little as four to six weeks if you really apply those types of work but we also expect that 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 gain in fitness probably won't last that long right um on conversely if we take more time to build up more aerobic capacity then when they add the glycolytic on top we get this perfect layer cake where things work out remember the magic between the two energy systems this is one of those things that when i think about it just makes me believe that I don't know, the universe has some really cool, weird fractals that all work together in magical ways that we don't quite understand. Because the glycolytic energy system, that is the anaerobic energy system, it burns sugar, and a necessary byproduct of that system is lactate. The aerobic system, as fuel, consumes fat, carbohydrate, oxygen goes in there, of course, because it's aerobic, and it also consumes lactate as fuel. 
So this is why when someone is really well trained in both energy systems, they can do amazing things like surge uh, over a short climb in a classic or uh, partway up a climb, they can surge out of the saddle and attack for 20, 30 seconds at a very, very high level and then sit down and then immediately resume back to threshold or just under threshold, one half of a micron under threshold. And because their aerobic system is so well-trained that they effectively consume this wave of lactate that's generated by the glycolytic system and that uses it as fuel. When those two systems are well-trained, they have this back and forth. They can go back and forth between both systems very effectively. Most riders don't achieve a high level of training at both systems at the key moment during many bike races, right? Or maybe they're in a race where they need one system only and it doesn't, the other doesn't. Like an hour record, for example, <laughs> or unbound. Yeah, yeah, unbound's a great example, right? You're talking nine plus hours for most riders, some riders maybe 10, 12, 14. I mean, this is at the the pointy end of the race. And, yep. and um, this podcast absolutely, I guess the framework of what we're both trying to express by the end here is centered towards everybody, but it's focused a little bit more on people who are trying to get the best out of themselves, not just to complete the day. Mm. Um, whilst this stuff I do think will... Uh, encourage people to think about their training for their best uh, performance irrespective of where they see themselves in the group of 4,000 people at Unbound but we, yeah. are, we are speaking maybe a little bit more specifically today about people who are trying to win or do really well in their category um, so for me I think the framework of what we're maybe trying to express and um, maybe also to insinuate is that everybody might be actually in the same situation as me right now, where they're in December, the gravel goals are in April through October somewhere. I don't really know which races you're all focusing on. They're all going to be different, which is another really cool part of gravel is that there's races all over the world that have different levels of importance to different people. Um, so it's not like there's one event that's the king event of all. Um, but there's a lot of people right now sitting in December thinking about how much training they think they should be doing versus how much training maybe they should be doing. And um, the reason why I asked you is how long do you think it actually takes to bring someone up mm. is an interesting point. Um, and this is, this is the uh, theory that I'm rolling with this season. And, and I think all training uh, plans should have a theory behind it. It shouldn't just be about, you know, riding and then hoping it's good at the right point. You should have a yeah. line in the sand and say, this is my goal period of time. Um, because it would be really naive if you, if you were trying to win a race not to plan for that win. I think mm. planning for your best performances often actually leads to that, um, you know, universal fractal thing that you're talking about is sometimes during that line in the sand, everything starts to converge towards it at the right time. Um, and I think intention is a big part of that. But... The framework of what we're trying to say, um, to keep repeating myself, is how much should you be doing right now is up to you and your own feeling on how much you think you need to be doing, not necessarily comparing yourself to somebody else online or on Strava or how much time they're doing on Zwift, etc. Um, and having somewhat of a trust based on past experiences about how little time it really takes for you once you start that high-intensity stuff before the races. And, and don't forget that you actually get fitter through the races if you come in, um, you know, on that trajectory where you're still getting better as opposed to getting worse. Um, so yeah, that's one point, important point about gravel races is 
they're sufficiently long and hard to where you will actually have some fitness gain from a competition. Whereas <clears throat> if you're racing criteriums, you could make an argument that you're actually getting a little bit less fit the more racing you do because there's travel, as you mentioned, right? And then there's a little bit of taper for the races. And then the criterium itself isn't hard enough to really gain a lot of fitness most of the time. I mean, yeah, there'll be some sport specific adaptations that happen, right? some neurological things and some jumping out of corners and whatever that isn't replicated in training. And if you're really out of shape and you show up to a crit, you're going to get a lot of fitness from that crit. But my point being is the overall load, the TSS for even a one hour criterium just isn't that high. But if you go to a gravel race and you're racing for six, seven, eight, ten 10 hours, yeah, it can be a five to itself, 800 TSS day. That is a big day. And that, that will can sometimes bump your fitness up. Even just that one day can have a noticeable impact on how you feel for a couple of weeks. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I had that experience this year. This year, I, I didn't actually get much racing in before Unbound, um, which was more or less due to um, you know the late announcement of the European calendar, um, and then all of a sudden I realized those races weren't happening until kind of like late April. So I only did two races before Unbound, um, which in Unbound I felt definitely underprepared this year. But then the next week, um, at Belgium Off Ride North Carolina, I was like, ah, this is like my true level again I was I was second there um, and I felt like I had a completely different set of legs and I'm sure that came from that depth and hardness mm -hmm. that I gained from doing unbound which is also a sports specific adaptation yeah race fitness is different to training fitness and don't ever forget that that's a very important mm -hmm. point I like to make to a lot of people mm. um, but uh, if we were to break it down and just make a blanket assumption here that most riders take between six eight ten twelve weeks of that sort of like high intensity build up towards their biggest goal. So we're talking like, you know, two, two and a half, two, maybe yeah. three for someone who's really slow at that, getting that like final tune up. Yeah. If we were to say we're in December and given that most people are going to start their season in April or some in May or even yeah. some in June. Yeah. Uh, what would you say are the key elements then about looking after yourself not necessarily on the bike in training, but what are the what are the fundamentals to making sure that you're healthy mm. coming into that period, so that you're most prepared for that next level of training, where we actually are training more of that glycolytic, starting to put more hours in on top of that, yep. coming up towards race fitness. So assuming that we don't kick our ass from December until April, right. and we kind of think about it as a proper build up, what are the key tenets from you as a coach, but also maybe holistically? Mm -hmm. To, to safeguard health? Assuming that the one rate limiting factor we always have mm. for fitness is health. Well, that's a great point. You know, um, not getting injured and not getting sick is actually one of the, I think it's one of the most underrated ways to make sure that you are fit for the season. Because when you have a clean run in to your season, that is you're continually building load, but you don't get Ill, injured or sick, then you don't have any setbacks. And also injury management and health management once you are sick in that buildup, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Not yep. just jumping out once the cold symptoms have dissipated or that mm. knee's not sore anymore. Jumping yeah. on a six-hour ride is not the best idea. Right, right, right. So, yeah, once, once we fall off the wagon and we do become injured or sick, then it becomes a different game and you have to manage that as quickly as possible and be sensible about it, right? Um, and not rush back into it. But Let's aside, imagine in a perfect world. Yeah you can control yourself by yeah. not getting sick or injured. Right. What, do do? what are your recommendations as a coach, also a Paul Czech certified coach, which is if anyone's wanting to really delve into a whole new world of learning, check out Paul Czech. Um, That's C-H-E-K, Czech Institute. 
Czech Institute. Um, he definitely changed my view on on health, I guess, and health and life. But that applies to cycling in perfect relationship. Mm-hmm. What would you say are the sort of key tenants behind your build-up period before you start your high-intensity race prep time? Mm. Well, it's it can be as simple as the six foundational principles, right? So, I mean, anytime you're in a you're adding load and you're training hard, you're working towards a goal, right? Even regardless of where you are in that spectrum, whether you're more on the pointy end and you're doing higher level VO2 efforts or glycolytic stuff, or whether you're just building base and continual fitness, maybe you're in the gym building strength. What's our, our number one most important recovery modality by far, hands down, ahead of cryo chambers and all the other goofy stuff we have out there is sleep. Sleep is absolutely number one. So you have to make it part of your lifestyle and your daily choices to safeguard your sleep, to defend your sleep. And that means all the things we already know about, like looking after sleep hygiene, consistent bedtimes, early bedtimes, right? Um, eating at the right time relative to bed. If you are going to consume alcohol, you're moving it as far away from bedtime as possible. You're doing it hopefully not that often and in not large quantities and ideally not the harder stuff, right? I mean, Alcohol is poison, let's be honest, and it does disrupt sleep for everyone. It's just a question of how much. But it's fun though, right? It's a part of gravel drinking beer. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of of life, right? And I'm not saying everyone has to live like a monk. That's not my my drum to beat. Uh, But we just have to be realistic and adult about our choices, right? It's like you drink a whole bottle of wine and you finish it at 1130 at night. So you're already up past later than you probably ideally ought to be and you consume a bunch of wine, we can expect that it's going to disrupt your sleep. You know, your liver's going to be challenged to detoxify that alcohol from your system. And that means it's probably going to wake you up at four in the morning and you're going to be sweating and doing all the things. So if you want to stay on track and be consistent with your performance uh, and get con- good, consistent training, then sleep is foundation foundational principle number one to watch after. Uh, the second one is hydration. I think, you know, I live in Colorado. It's an extremely arid climate. We're all riding our bikes all the time. And it's so dry there that literally when you talk, the moisture coming out of your lungs and your voice is dehydrating you. It's the equivalent of leaving the refrigerator open in the summer and trying to trying to air condition your whole apartment, right? It's just a losing battle. So water vapor is just escaping you constantly. Here in Catalonia, where we are at the moment, it's a lot more humid, but you still lose so much fluid during the day. And we have to be on top of replenishing that. And I'll say that One little detail that's very important about hydration is people tend to think of it in the same way they think of sleep sometimes. And I hear people say this, well, I didn't sleep that much this week, so I'm going to catch up on the weekend. There's no such thing as catching up on sleep. Think about it. For every 24-hour period, about a third of that should be sleeping, about eight hours for most people, right? A little more if you're training really hard, a little more if you've got more life stress, right, et cetera, ideally. Not always possible, but this is what we're aiming towards. So if you get four hours of sleep one night and three hours of sleep the next night, or maybe it's eight hours in bed, but it's really disrupted because you ate a huge meal and drank uh, two pitchers of beer before you went to bed, so your sleep's really rocky, you can't just sleep 10 hours on Saturday morning and make up for that. Those opportunities for recovery are, are missed, and that's what we're sacrificing when we miss sleep, is the, the deep hormonal cycles that repair the body and prepare it for training. And training is an ongoing process. It's so easy for us to focus on the interval numbers we got for one workout, you know, the five minute numbers or the 20 minute numbers or whatever we're focusing on and say, were they better or worse? And those aren't invalid numbers to look at, but really most of training is about just doing hard, consistent work, right? 
and bringing up the average level of work over time. That's what's more relevant. And so if you're skipping sleep here and there and you're having a couple Tuesdays and Wednesdays of most weeks in the middle where things are really rough and you're not getting enough rest and you're trying to back those up with interval days and you're going deep on the intervals, you're going to compromise your recovery, right? So sleep is number one. Hydration is the second and hydration works the same way as sleep is my point, which is it doesn't work to just slam a gallon of water before you go to bed. <laughs> all you're going to do then is sacrifice your sleep because you're going to be up peeing all night. So we have to hydrate intelligently throughout the day. Most days, the first thing I do is drink a fair amount of water when I wake up in the morning. And we all know that we live in the most crowded, busiest planet we've ever had in human history, right? Something like 8 billion people on the planet now. Unfortunately, we've all got microplastics on our water and glyphosate in our food. And every, it doesn't matter where you live in the world, just a question of how much. And the best solution for pollution is dilution. So when you're drinking a fair amount of water regularly, it helps your body detoxify. So there are, there are the tricky part about something like hydration is when you really start to hydrate regularly and often you just feel better. Your connective tissue feels better. Your muscles recover more effectively. But unless we're really experiencing that, it's hard to draw these correlations uh, for our clients sometimes. It's hard to kind of sell them on to get on that wagon, right? They have to do it for two or three weeks. And if you've been chronically dehydrated for a long time and you just start drinking a bunch of water, get ready to pee a lot for three or four days because it takes your body time to learn to assimilate that and change the structure. Those are two of my bigger tips. Of course, we have to eat well, nutrition. As, as Colby's reaching for a water bottle right yes. now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're blessed with such a nice warm day here in December in Girona. So got to stay on top of it. Nutrition is the next one, of course. We have to eat well, fuel your body properly. I see people all over the map. Um, I just coming off a week at Team EF coaching camp and one of the lectures we have was from our nutritionist, Will Gerling, and he pointed out that uh, when a rider is on the bike for four or five hours, their caloric intake has to reflect that. And when you actually look at how much more food they have to eat on those days, it's, um, it's really obvious that most riders don't actually add that much food to recover from that. So what they do, a weekend warrior rider will ride, maybe they do three rides during the week that are an hour to 90 minutes. That'd be a typical person with a real job and a life kind of thing, but they're taking cy cycling pretty seriously, right? They get a lunch ride, maybe one morning it's early, one morning they have an early morning workout and then they get another lunch ride, okay? So that's, that's no problem. You don't, even if you're going hard on those rides, you could get by with a normal lunch and maybe a snack and you're more or less okay. Uh, but then on Sunday, they go out for four or five hours and do some really cool, awesome gravel ride with a bunch of climbing. That's very glycogen intensive. It's very draining. It's a lot of KJs of work, but they go home and eat a dinner and then they're like, man, I'm starving. And maybe they have a little more bread before dinner or they have dessert afterwards. That's like a grand in the hole, at least in terms of calories, minimum. And this isn't like you're going to get ripped and lean and super skinny grand in the hole. This is like, you're just going to feel empty even on Tuesday, because then on Monday, when you don't ride, you're thinking, well, I can't eat much today because I want to maintain my weight. So I don't want to eat much. And it's a rest day. I don't have time to ride today because it's a work day. So I'm just going to do a few minutes of stretching in the morning and a little bit of core at night. And that's it. That's 20 minutes worth of work. That's not enough. So I'm going to have very light meals. So I'm only going to have one egg with breakfast. And then for lunch, I'm going to have a salmon salad. And then for dinner, I'm going to have a little bit of quinoa with my pasta or not with pasta, but whatever my steak. And then by Tuesday, you go to get on your intervals and it's like, why are my legs so empty? I thought I was fitter than this. 
I thought I was better than this, but the reality is you're still in the hole from Sunday, right? So nutrition is hypercritical. We have to always think about training as being, it's almost like it's a conveyor belt. What's coming down the road. You're always looking ahead. You're preparing for the next workout, even if it's two or three days away, even if it's a week away, right? Those are the, the, the really big ones are sleep, hydration, nutrition for sports that are sort of low hanging fruit. The ones that are arguably a little perhaps more esoteric, we'll say, are breathing and thinking. So thinking goes back to the theme of our pod, the primal fear. Do you have a lot of negative thoughts in your, in your mind movies, right? What's happening in your head? Are you, do you have a voice that says, oh, you suck today, or you're going to get dropped on this ride, or you probably can't do the intervals, the intervals at the right power today because you're not good enough, or whatever our story is that we're telling ourselves, how does that primal fear well up inside us? And, well, and another expression of that can actually be if, if your coach or yourself has said, I'm going to go do my efforts at 400 watts today, but you do them at 420 because you're actually trying to prove something. Yes. That's another expression of the primal fear, right? Mm. Because it's actually, it's not to your best interest because if, it, if, the, if the plan is true and 400 watts was supposed to be where you were mm. working at and instead you put yourself more into a hole for the next part of your training block. This is a great point. Yeah, um, where I find this, this comes out most is when I prescribe athletes tempo efforts and they consistently do them at threshold, right? Tempo is a notch below threshold, right? It's not at anaerobic threshold or functional threshold power, or MLSS or whatever you want to call it. It is a full notch below that. So for most riders, that's 30, 40 watts below, right? Minimum 20. And, but because people have that primal fear welling up, they want to, they, they believe somehow, whether they think it conceptually or whether it's the fear welling up inside them, they think that somehow they have to train a little harder than everyone else, which is a myth that that's going to make them because they're not good enough inherently. They're going to make that up with effort. And so they're going to optimize these workouts. So instead of doing them at 280 Watts, I'm going to do them at 305, which is really a threshold effort. And that's a different physiological effect than the coach had intended. If they wrote you three by 10 minutes at tempo, you go and do a three by 10 at threshold. Then we've, we've shifted energy systems. We've shifted demands on the body. We've actually put more stress on the body than was intended for the workout. So the coach prescribed enough. Yes. But you, but you went and did more. More. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, that's an important um, example, again, and different yeah. expression of what can happen with the primal fear. Yeah. And I see this all the time with riders. Um, and I've done it myself. You know, I'd be, I'd be lying if I wasn't telling the truth on that. I, I probably still do it all the time. Um, but this thinking... Um, uh, section of the six fundamental principles mm -hmm. um, I would actually also include feeling on that right mm -hmm. uh, we can also tell what tempo feels like and you know if we can just move aside the conversation for one second to, to something that I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a broken record on this is that FTP is a lie <laughs> um, it exists and at the same time it does not exist it's in a quantum state um, my FTP at the start of a race is different to my FTP at the end of a race. Mm. My FTP at Liège, Baston Liège, might be four or five. But then the next day, theoretically, it's only 100 because that's all I can actually do on the bike. 
that's a very, very extreme example. But tempo is also in relationship to this odd number we call FTP. And some days, um, tempo might be correct to that number that we have from testing. So maybe it's 330 watts mm -hmm. as my tempo. But if 330 watts starts to actually feel like the effort of literally just tapping underneath threshold, then that's actually not my threshold for the day. So you have to sometimes, in that effort, think about it and say, the goal today, the, the goal that was given that was supposed to be enough for my training stress today mm. is to ride three 10 minutes at tempo. But my tempo today only feels like I can do 290. Then that's fine. Mm. Because in a race, like I said, your FTP changes towards the end. On that day, your theoretical FTP, if your goal is to do tempo efforts, mm -hmm. has also changed, and that's okay. And that's where the thinking um, needs to also relate to your feeling. Yes. And athletes that look purely at numbers and yep. look at ticking off the boxes on training peaks or today's plan, whatever it is, this is where they can actually often get very lost. Very lost. Um, yeah. So I think you know the concept of enough... Um, mm. is a very important one, which I might try to conclude the, the pod when we get to it in a moment yeah. um, with a nice story about enough, but I'll let yeah. you finish with the fundamental principles. So one quick point on that is I think this could be an actionable way for people to sort of help figure out what to do in this type of scenario, right? Okay, so let's use a simple example. Let's say that you're doing uh, five-minute maximal efforts on a day. These are really hard intervals, right? So you've got four or five by five, we'll say. So this is a day where you've got enough aerobic base, you've been training consistently for a few months and you're ready to really push and you're getting close to race time and you want to lift your VO2 presumably because this would be the energy system most riders are training when they do this. And we're not talking about five minutes of threshold, we're talking a full notch above threshold, right? So quite hard, like pursuit pace. And you go out and you have a certain expectation about your numbers and maybe that, we'll just pick numbers just to make things easy. Let's say that you're targeting 330 watts for all five efforts, okay? And that is based on your history as an athlete and some other five-minute efforts you've done. And let's pretend for a moment that your coach conferred with you and they agreed this is a good average. So you go out and you do the first one and you're absolutely throttling yourself and like you're giving yourself a root canal with no Novocaine, okay? And you look at the average at the end and it's 308. Ooh, okay, a full 22 watts below what you kind of thought you were shooting for. So at this point, you've got what I would say are three decisions. One is you're honestly looking at yourself and you're saying, you know what? I'm not capable of handling this workload today. I just gave myself uh, a root canal and the result was far under what we expected and I feel absolutely dreadful. So what you're doing is looking at the, the qualitative data, the numbers, and then you're adding the quantitative data, how you feel, and you go, I feel terrible. I feel like I'm dragging a tree stump behind my bike. Fine. I'm going to flip it, go home, text my coach and say, I felt horrible today. Maybe we try again tomorrow or the day after. And you think about it, right? Did I not eat enough? Am I underhydrated? Or did I sleep like crap? Or maybe some combination, or maybe there's some other factor that weighed into it. Okay, cool. That's decision choice one. Choice two is, I thought about it for a moment. I slept fine last night. I ate well last night and I had a good breakfast this morning. I think I'm just not quite making the numbers. Uh, this was really hard, but I'm not dying. It was just hard. So you know what? I'm going to finish the intervals. I'm going to do the best I can. And this is simply a day of work. Now, this is one of the conundrums of modern power meters is that before you had a power meter, you would have just looked at heart rate and you would have never known that you did 308 instead of 330 or 
308 instead of 350 or 350 instead of 330. You would have never known any of that. But now, because you have this extra information, more information, more problems, right? It's like, mal what do I do? Information, mal problems. Exactly. <laughs> so maybe the answer sometimes is to do nothing, meaning change nothing and keep doing the workout. So you go, this is just a day of hard work. 308 is my new standard. I'm going to try to make the subsequent efforts close to 308 as possible, and I'm just going to go for it. And I'm going to take this as a building block of hard work because I feel healthy and I've eaten enough and I've slept enough. So I'm not going to worry about the discrepancy in numbers. And I understand that not every day, the only criteria on which I do judge a training ride is not the success of me meeting exactly 330 or 332 for every interval. This is not what makes a constructive day. What makes a constructive day is just simply hard work. That's like staring the primal fear in the eye. Exactly. And saying, yep. fuck you. Yes. I'm not right. comparing myself to this number that was prescribed to me. Yeah. I'm going to get I'm okay. Job done. I have confidence because right. I know I've eaten enough. I know it, I'm, it just, I'm, it is I'm enough it is. right now. And yeah. that number is yes. essentially enough. Right. And that right. work will then express itself as the right amount of work. Exactly. So I would offer those choices as ways to... What's the third choice? The, the third would be the other way, which is like um, you you decide to go bonkers and that you also the primal fear comes up and you go, well, I'm going to do the intervals and I'm not good enough. So then I'm going to add another three hours on top or I'm going to do eight five-minute intervals. And this occasionally happens as well. People see the number and they still have a, a primal fear response and they freak out over it. And instead of, so the middle road is to just do the efforts and not worry about it. Right. But you can have two primal fear oriented responses. One is to quit and go home, which sometimes, sometimes can be the wise decision. It can be the honest decision. Like I would actually, I know argue, I'm in the hole. I would actually argue right? in yeah. most cases, yeah. if you've analyzed and done some thinking and said, actually, you know, I've been having trouble with work. Yeah. Um, there's family stress, you know, someone's sick. Yeah. I haven't been sleeping well. Yeah. You know, all of these things outside of cycling slash I haven't slept well. Hydration has been questionable. I've been traveling, blah, blah, blah. Right. It's okay to bail on a training day because, again, no coach in this world, and you'll agree with this, is a savant and can see into the future. It's a guess at best as to what you need. But sometimes you know better just by getting out on the bike and saying, Today is not a building day. Today is just a day to go home and build by resting. So yeah. that's, that's, yes. that's option one. Yes. Option two, I would say, is the... Just do the work. Do the work. Yeah. Stare primal fear in the eye and say, fuck yep. you, I'm on top of this. This yep. is enough. My numbers are enough, and I don't need to compare myself to an imaginary level that I'm supposed to be at. Mm -hmm. I am where I am, and I'm building up to that. Yep. And three is the obviously dumb one <laughs> to never do, right? <laughs> to add more. Yeah. Well, I'll say this, once in every three years, the add more works, but it's a huge, it's a huge risk on the ROI. Right. Um, I've had moments where it's like, I don't know why, but I think I just need to go ride six hours today. And I do, and it leads to this breakthrough. Even though I don't feel great, I haven't felt great for a couple of weeks, and you just, you absolutely smash yourself. And then the, the legs just turn on magically. Cycling's a really weird sport. This is why what you said is accurate. Coaches can't predict the future, even we as athletes can't always predict our own future. And the problem is you have one of those experiences where you do the six hour smash ride and it magically turns everything on and you go great for a month afterwards. And then every time after that, when you're completely in the box, there's this side of you that's like, maybe I just need six hours of a bunch of hard stuff. And I'm telling you that only works once every three years, literally once every three years, every thousand days at best, that's your best ratio. But it's a card you can play every once in a while.
Yeah. If, so if it's been about three years since you've done that and it worked, maybe it's time. <laughs> so let's yeah. keep let's keep going. What's yeah. the next fundamental principles uh, after breathing and yep. thinking? The thinking. Uh, the last one is movement. So really, we've talked a lot about that. I mean, these are the these are the the the, the principles that make up health. And if you have a right relationship with your movement, then you're on target. So if we unpack that, that means having all the relationships that we just spoke about with your own training and your own primal fear and how it wells up in your own preparation, your clarity on your own vision of your training or clarity of communication with your coach that you're on the right path and that you actually believe honestly that what your coach is writing for you is going to be enough to prepare you. And if you don't, then it's time for more conversations with your coach where you say, okay, but don't I need more of these types of intervals? I feel like I need more long, hard stuff that's uh, tempo, but really, really high torque. Why are we not having that in our program? And look, I mean, this is, there's, there's a, a tricky relationship here because when you hire a coach, presumably you hire them for their expertise, right? Their experience. Um, they've, race themselves. They've been coaching for many years. They've seen many athletes. They've well, launched training programs, <laughs> hopefully. Right. And you hire them for all these reasons and you have a good rapport them with them and you're honest with them and you can communicate with them. Those are good things to have. However, there's one area of expertise in which your coach can never, ever surpass you. And that is the expertise of you in your own body, right? No coach can ever tell you how hard an interval was. No coach can ever tell you how tired you truly are, right? So if a coach is trying to obscure or um, obfuscate your data in that respect, I would argue he or she is not quite listening to the real expert in the room. You are the only one inhabiting your human body. You are the one having the human experience. And the reality is, I mean, Nathan, you've had this experience too, where there are days where you go out for a ride and everyone's like, yeah, let's go for this ride. And you go, this is not the day for me to ride my bike. I am completely in the box. I need to turn around and go home and take a nap. And everyone's like, what's wrong with you? You know, come on, you're fine. You're fine. It's all in your head. And it's like, no, this is, this is indisputable. I'm the master of my own domain. This is my castle. My castle says nap time. And there are times when you have to have that, pull that card. There are other times where you also have an instinct, a deep knowing, internal knowing, I need this type of interval. I don't know why. It just it keeps coming to me, right? It's a repeated intuition. And the more you develop that own internal intuition, the better your relationship with your coach will be because you can offer them that input. Then they translate that into how it's going to fit and how it's going to work into your program. But ultimately, you're the expert on your body. So that goes into thinking. Right. Um, but movement, too. Movement. Um, is a super important one this time of year. Yes. Um, one of my favorite sayings is that you cannot shoot a cannon from a canoe. Yeah. Um, a lot of injuries come from actually not having, if we use the car uh, as a metaphor, mm -hmm. if your chassis can't handle a 1,200 horsepower engine, it's going to twist, and then there's going to be all sorts of problems throughout the whole car, and your transmission is going to smash, and the yep. clutch is going to fall out because nothing can actually handle that power. So. This is a fantastic time of year to actually work on any of the injuries that you had throughout the season and master them. Like you said, be the, be the king of your domain. Yep. Work on that functional body that gets so un, or dysfunctional throughout a season of, of training. Mm -hmm. So it's a very good investment of time to actually switch some of those volume hours or some of those intensity hours with really high quality movement. Um, and that can be as easy as Tai Chi. It can be Qigong. It can be gym. 
Um, it can be core, but don't confuse core with just sitting there doing crunches. Do it, in, do it intelligently and specifically. Mm -hmm. Hire an expert if you have the means to do that. And if you don't have the means to do that, get on Google and check out Paul Check again. Um, or buy his book called um, Eat, Move. And How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy. Be Healthy. It's, it's a game-changing book for anyone that wants to really learn about how the body should work and can work. It's like an owner's manual for the human body. Right. It's yeah. incredible. It's, it's a hard read. There's a lot of thinking that goes into mm -hmm. it and he tests you throughout the book. Um, but that's a good thing too, right? Um, yep. it's, it promotes thinking, which is, again, one of the fundamental principles. Um, but movement's super, super important. But to edge towards wrapping this up, um, a lot of the time we, we look at this concept of marginal gains, uh, which is, I actually think, one of the most beautiful concepts that's ever happened in cycling, but I think it can be very misunderstood. Mm. Um, Ineos Sky first came up with it or brought it into cycling. I think it was a bit of a money ball moment for cycling. Mm. Um, but everyone thinks that that means they're putting on their compression boots, doing ice baths, doing sauna, taking this supplement, doing this modality, this, that, or the other. Mm. But actually, what Ineos slash Sky did all of those years ago was actually teach riders these six principles without expressing it exactly like we did. And it came down to everyone needs to focus more on their sleep. And they were questioned about their sleep. Mm. And they had to communicate how they slept. They were taught how to eat properly on the bike, off the bike. Hydration was another one of their huge things. But they were also taught how to switch off. And... It doesn't matter how many tiny one percenters you have extra through these modalities that can add, you know, one, two, three watts here. Um, and, you know, this is also separate from the one percenters in terms of the bike. Like, oh, you know, I've chosen the tires with the lowest rolling resistance. My CDA is down to this. I've got an aero helmet, aero socks. It yeah. doesn't matter how many watts that saves if you don't have a good base amount of watts to start off with. And those watts build up with marginal gains through the fundamentals, which are sleep, eat, think, yes. drink, move, and breathe. And breathe. Um, so to wrap it up to what um, I heard is a beautiful story recently from my dad, um, and I'm going to butcher it because I'm actually forgetting the, the author, <laughs> um, uh, who was the, the person who's the story centralized around, mm -hmm. is this author was invited um, in America to a billionaire's party. And this is quite a famous author. He wrote an amazing book. Um, and this billionaire found out that he was in town and he was invited to the party through a friend. Now, when this author turned up to this billionaire's party, he was invited and he was very welcomed into the house. And the owner said, hey, let me show you around my house. And he showed him his art collection. It had Renoir, Monet, Picasso, you name it. Crazy amounts of money hanging on the wall. And then he says, come down and check out my car collection. He's got Bugattis, Maseratis, mm. Porsches, you know, an amazing car collection. And, you know, the, the list goes on throughout the house. It was very elaborate. And when his friend leaves uh, the party and takes <coughs> him home, they're driving home and he says, hey, how amazing was that party? And he was like, yeah, great party. I had a great time. And he goes, yeah, and that guy that owns all that stuff, isn't that insane? And he goes, yeah, but you know what? I have something he'll never have. And his friend sort of chuffs it in. He's like, yeah, and what's that? And he goes, I have enough. Mm. So don't forget the comparative mindset is only relative to where you think you are in space and time and where you want to be in space and time and accepting that where you are and as long as your goals are true and realistic and what you're setting for yourself, the enough comes mainly 
through intuition and feeling and thinking and making sure that you're looking after your fundamentals. Mm. Yeah, well said. Agreed. Um, you know, it's a bit of a paradox, like a Zen cone, right? Because comparative sport, cycling is often about the whole sport is based on the premise that you don't have enough because you're trying to accomplish something that is have something that you don't already have. If you were eighth last year, you want to be sixth or top five or on the podium. If you were second last year, you want to win. If you didn't finish last year, you just want to finish, right? Um, maybe you just want to beat your buddy. <laughs> so the paradox is that in trying to accomplish this thing, to gain something that we don't already have, in a way, we have to let go of that attachment to the outcome because that's how we gain true enjoyment in the process, right? They're process goals and outcome goals. In order to let go of the outcome goal, that's a delicious lunch someone's preparing. Mm. <laughs> then at 3 p.m. Uh, yeah, <laughs> lunchtime in Spain. In order to let go of the outcome goal, uh, we have to focus on the process goals or an effective way to let go of the outcome goal temporarily while keeping it in the back of our mind. I'm not saying let go of it completely. It's part of what drives a sportsman or a sportswoman is that that goal is to accomplish more, to do the thing. But if you only look at the outcome and you're constantly seeing it in every single training ride you do, especially if you equate it to a particular wattage for a particular duration, like I'm last year I made, this is the way the mind works. Last year I made 318 watts was my best 20 minute effort ever. And I got fifth in this race. The only way I will get top three or win is if I can make at least 330 watts. This is erroneous thinking. It is far too simplistic. And it also shows a complete lack of understanding of really the essence of cycling, which is about timing. Timing is everything. We tend to think of cycling simplistically in terms of the one who carries the biggest stick will win. But this is so rarely the case in bike racing. So rarely, right? Now, of course, at the world tour level, when things are refined, often the rider with the most power wins, right? Or the best power to weight ratio and or best power to aerodynamic ratio, but not frequently, also not always. A lot of times it comes down to teamwork. Cycling's a weird sport. It's a team sport where an individual wins. So what am I getting at? In your gravel adventures, application of power at the right moment can gain you so many places in a peloton or so many, uh, such a faster result. It's not only about making more power, it's about using it more effectively. Or a fantastic um, comparison in gravel is in this time of year, going out and working on your technical ability. Yes. Ride some rock gardens and yes. learn how to be soft on the bike. Yes. Unweight the bike. Because I can tell you, if you've had to use your best power in a race to come back from a flat, there's no chance of winning, but sometimes the best riders with the biggest stick have also flattered mm -hmm. because they weren't soft on their bike at the right time. So yep. there's there's a lot of things that you can be doing in this time of year that aren't all load, aren't all intensity, mm -hmm. and it's actually about thinking, about sharpening your spear coming into the next year and hoping to throw that spear at the right time. And yes. if you can, and it's sharp because you've done everything right for a long time, avoiding illness, avoiding stress, and not getting sucked into this cortisone pit of comparative mindset, mm -hmm. then you're actually more than likely to hit your best ever outcome. Mm -hmm. Well said. Agreed. Cool. Th throw that spear right in the center of that target. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I guess that's, that's a wrap. 
for us today. Um, apologies for the end of this podcast. There was a little bit of soaring from a house over the corner, a few dogs barking. So, so we normally we, we actually normally record this podcast um, from different parts of the world through the interweb, yes. um, which gives us very often a very clear um, recording. So if today us sitting on the rooftop isn't the clearest recording, we apologize, but we thought we would probably be able to get into the deepest part of our conversation by actually being in person. So there it is. Mm-hmm. There you go. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Colby. Peace out. You bet, buddy. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of Cycling in Alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading, Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.